The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's go ahead and start, if we might. I've got 6.30 and a 13-page outline, so there you go. (laughs) Past experience holds. We won't finish it, but we'll get as far as we can. So we're continuing our study uh, on baptism, and... uh, uh, I just I want to begin with prayer. Father, I ask that you would help us tonight as we study. Be with me. Give me a wisdom, strength, uh, clarity uh, to talk um, about this topic and uh, love, also charity. Thank you, O Lord, for these that have assembled here tonight so that we can learn your word. So be with us as we learn more about baptism in Jesus' name. Amen. So just uh, tonight, our desire is to look at differing views of baptism, but we still have some unfinished business uh, from last week, and so I'll just give a little review to get us a running start, and we'll get into some of the biblical evidence that we Baptists would put forward that baptism was administered only to believers, and that'll uh, be, um, I think, a good segue then into uh, the three issues that, you know, perhaps we'll have time to cover all three of them tonight. So uh, the differing views of baptism that I at least have in view to cover tonight are infant baptism and baptismal regeneration and the topic of child baptism. So those are the things we want to talk about tonight. But first, let's just do a little review from last time. We have two ordinances that we uh, recognize as uh, Christians, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We talked about how they are symbolic by nature. Um, They uh, are physical symbols of some spiritual reality. There's a big difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper in that baptism is just done once for all time, never needs to be done again, whereas the Lord's Supper we do repeatedly. As often as we eat of it, we remember the Lord's death and proclaim it until he comes. Talked about ordinances and sacraments and all that. That's just by way of just a general overview of the two ordinances. Then we got into baptism itself. The word uh, relates to the Greek word for immerse, to immerse or dunk something. Full immersion in water, therefore, is the proper mode for baptism. This is all just... uh, review from last time, immersion in water then should be done only once in the life of a true believer in Christ. Uh, It's not something that should be done multiple times. It should be done toward the beginning of the Christian life. It's not done as a reward for sanctification or theological education or any of those things. It's done at the beginning of the Christian life. Um, generally as soon as you can after initial saving faith. It is a matter of obedience. We believe that the Lord commanded us to do this, and it is an opportunity for us to proclaim our faith in Christ and to get connected in a healthy way to a local church. It's a local church ordinance. We saw it first in the ministry of John the Baptist, again by way of review in in, uh, Matthew chapter 3 and other places. Uh, Christ's baptism. Uh, the baptism of Christ, a higher baptism, is fundamental to my understanding of water baptism is that water baptism in the new covenant symbolizes spirit baptism, the baptism that only Jesus can do. Jesus does the spirit baptism to us at the moment of faith. Uh, justifying faith, we are baptized by the spirit into that one body of Christ. And so water baptism then becomes an outward and visible symbol of that spiritual baptism that only Christ can do. Christ did it spiritually. Um, we can't see that, then in his wisdom he's given us this symbol of water baptism. It was John the Baptist that alluded to this very plainly in Matthew 3. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one more powerful than I, uh, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand and clear as threshing floor, gathering up the wheat with his, uh, into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So basically, my understanding of that passage is that Jesus either baptizes you with the Holy Spirit or with fire, completely immerses you in the Spirit, uh, does that at conversion, or he will immerse you in the lake of fire on Judgment Day. That's my understanding of Jesus' baptism. He then uh, had his uh, disciples baptized with water. He himself submitted to water baptism, and he instructed or trained his disciples in doing it, uh, and he commanded... uh, his disciples to do this in the Great Commission. Water baptism then symbolizes the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, As Jesus himself said, John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there's a contrast there between Jesus' baptism and the baptism of water. Uh, Jesus doesn't do water baptism. The church does that. All right, but it symbolizes spirit baptism. And then, as we already quoted, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized by one spirit into one body, etc. It is also symbolic of our spiritual union with Christ. We are completely united with Christ. Uh, that immersion in the Holy Spirit, a picture of union in Christ in a mysterious sort of way. We are united with him, and therefore we should not go on sinning, uh, etc. It's, symbol, uh, it's symbolic sorry, of uh, spiritual cleansing. Uh, Titus 3 says we uh, were uh, washed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That washing language is pretty common. Acts 22:16. What are you waiting for? Speaking of Saul of Tarsus, get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So it's symbolic of a spiritual cleansing. All right, so that's all review. Yes, go ahead. Um, just the idea of in the New Covenant there being symbols. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me the justification for that? Because I think of that... I understand that in the Old Testament there were types and um, senses in which something prefigured later um, or complete fulfillment of it. Right. Okay, symbols under the New Covenant, are they real or are are those just some of the shadows? Are we just using it as a term? Yeah, I think the word symbol, although I I, I suppose we could do a, a... Uh, search on the word symbol, but I don't think it's going to get us very far. Instead, what you're going to look at are things like Jesus' statement in John 6. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Uh, and This is my body, this is my blood, that kind of thing. So there's this spiritual reality. The Catholics wrongly use John 6 to talk about transubstantiation, which couldn't possibly be in view there because he hadn't even had the Last Supper. That was just in the middle of his ministry and he's just teaching, eat my flesh and drink my blood. So he can't be thinking of, of the Lord, uh, Lord's Supper at that particular moment. But we have this idea of this is my body when he says that at the institution of the Lord's Supper. That's, uh, we just take that symbolically. So the word symbol or symbolically is a helper word that comes along and tries to help us to understand what the word is means. Uh, Luther just went crazy on this word is. This is my body. Me, to him, though he denied transubstantiation, he believed in something called consubstantiation, which doesn't get us very far, frankly. Uh, I don't want to get into all that. We can talk about it, God willing, next week. But uh, basically, he just really camped on that word is. And I, I, to, most Protestants have understood that don't believe in transubstantiation. This signifies or represents or is some way symbolic of my body and your relationship to it. So, again, it's a helper word. It's not necessarily found in the Bible, but I think it's useful. All right, so now let's get to the biblical evidence that baptism was administered only to believers. And there's, there's much, really, uh, throughout the book of Acts. Again and again, we have this pattern. It, it really, if you just want to start with the, uh, the logical ordering in the Great Commission. Um, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and, what, make disciples baptizing and teaching them to obey everything. So I think there's just a very beautiful order 
the going first of the, of the messengers, the witnesses, the missionaries, the making of disciples, a disciple being somebody who submits himself to the authority of this spiritual leader, this king. The disciple has been made. The person is now a disciple of Jesus Christ. They are then baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then they are given a comprehensive education for the rest of their lives. That's part of why you're here tonight. You're being taught to obey everything Christ has commanded. And it's a, it's a lifetime of learning. Christianity is an education. All right. And I think that's, that's very, very plain and, and very clear. But then you see it acted out again and again in the book of Acts. Um, when the people heard this, Acts chapter 2, 37, 38, we'll come across these verses a couple more times in our outline. But when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other uh, apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So um, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. All right. So the idea then is you have to repent and believe this message and then you're, you're baptized. There's no uh, evidence of any other kind uh, there in Acts chapter 2. Those who accepted his message, it says later in Acts 2, were baptized. So those that accepted the message were baptized. Again, Acts uh, 8 and verse 12. When they believed Philip as they preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So, again, there's a very clear ordering. When they believed the message, then they were baptized. That may be one of the clearest believer Baptist verses you're going to find. They believed, then they were baptized. And again, uh, with Cornelius, after the Holy Spirit comes, and by the way, you can say, you know, if, if what you're saying is true, then why the ordering? There's all kinds of orderings on spirit, the speaking of tongues, and then the water baptism in the, in the book of Acts. And you would say, well, doesn't that, you know, listen, you're not going to find a pattern. So I don't think we should look to that to prove that water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism. I think you really go to, have to go back to John the Baptist's words, okay? Because I think the Lord was doing something different. I think he was unifying the church. So like when the Samaritans believed in Acts chapter 8, there was every tendency that they would have to have their own independent worship of Jesus and not have anything to do with the Jews at all. And that would be a big problem. And so I think the Lord was doing some special things to bring Jews and Samaritans together. For Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans, it says in John 4. But God wouldn't have that. He wanted one new man. He wanted that union, that unity. And so they don't get the outward and visible display of speaking in tongues and the baptism uh, visibly displayed at that point. They don't get that until the apostles, the Jewish apostles, come from Jerusalem of all places and lay hands on those Samaritan believers. I think it's pretty obvious what's going on there. He is trying to destroy any barrier there might possibly be between Jews and Samaritans at that point. And I think you, you could carry the same logic through with Act, in Acts 19. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, that kind of thing. And uh, so I, I wouldn't push any of that um, at this particular time. Other than that, you're going to end up with probably Pentecostal theology, but it's going to be scattered because it's not consistent. At, at one point, it's believe, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and other times the Holy Spirit comes, and then they get baptized. I mean, it's all over the place. For example, look at Cornelius. Um, the, the, they hear the message, and the Holy Spirit comes, Right? And they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues and they're just clearly in the faith, just like in the day of Pentecost. They're just, they're there. And he says, look, can anyone stop these people from being baptized in water? They've already received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so there's nothing we could do. We're going to go ahead and baptize them. So that's the beginning of the whole Gentile believers and all that kind of thing. That would be, I think, more the ordering that I'm recommending to you theologically that is lasted in the church. In other words, the preaching of the word, the hearing with faith, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then the water baptism. So Acts chapter 10 would, would I think, be the normative pattern. But I, again, I'm not going to push on the patterns and the orderings. I think we're just seeing that these are believers. 
In other words, there is not a single case of water baptism being administered to people who are not believers in the book of Acts. That's, that's the point I'm making here. Not a single one. I mean, there's no examples. We'll get to the house baptisms in a moment, but there's, there's not a single example. Acts 16, 14, and 15, we have Lydia in Philippi. Uh, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a deal in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. Uh, and she persuaded us. I think you would uh, rightly put the word since in there. Since you obviously consider me a believer in the Lord, then come stay in my house. I think that's what she's saying there. And she's inviting, I think, uh, there, there to be a house church, really. Remember how they didn't even have a synagogue there. And they were meeting down at the river at the place of prayer. And so she's saying, here's a good place to begin. She was clearly a wealthy woman, purple cloth being a, a luxury item. Uh, but again, you see the ordering. Uh, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and then she was baptized. Now, there is a household there, but we don't have much information about them, and I, I don't think we can say much. We'll talk about infant baptism in a moment. But again, at least in Lydia's case, it's pretty clear. The Lord opens her heart, she responds to Paul's message, then she's water baptized. Okay, again, Acts 16, we have the Philippian jailer. We'll come across this passage again, but we'll just read it now. The Philippian jailer calls for lights. He rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out, then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Uh, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your, ho your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer uh, brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Again, this is very plainly an example of the same ordering I'm recommending. The messengers have come to the town. They, pro they proclaim a message. The person believes it, and then water baptism is administered. That's really how it goes. And then in Acts 18, verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Again, believe first, then water baptism. All right, so we reject the concept of infant baptism. More on that this week. All right, sorry about that. So you have a little accretion in there, but you can circle it and enjoy it if, the, if you enjoy those kinds of things. Um, any questions about the evidence concerning believer baptism? Again, I say to you, there's not a single contrary evidence. There's, there's, it's not like I'm skipping some verses. I'm just, I haven't given you all the evidence that there is that it's believer, believer baptism every single time. All right, well, now let's talk directly about infant baptism. <clears throat> and uh, if I can just begin this way, I'm not get, meaning to give you, uh, Baptist, my, my dear brothers and sisters who are Baptists, an inferiority complex, but we are greatly in the minority in the Christian world, just so you know that. That doesn't mean we're part of a cult, but the fact of the matter is... Most of those groups of people who call themselves Christians believe in infant baptism. Most of them. Okay, so we're talking Roman Catholics, Orthodox, and all the spin-off groups that um, came from Roman Catholicism and didn't come more fully, I think, into a New Testament understanding. So that would be Anglicans and Episcopalians. Those are just one step removed from Roman Catholicism. Remember how King Henry VIII didn't want to leave the Catholic Church. Lutherans, same thing. He didn't change anything on that issue, infant baptism. Reformed following Calvin, all of them believed in infant baptism. So that would be the Presbyterian church uh, following Calvin's example, believe in infant baptism. The Methodists who are spin-offs from the Anglican church, they didn't go far from it either, infant baptism again. So where does that leave us, dear friends? leaves us with the scripture, and they have their traditions. So we'll talk more about that. But bottom line is we are numerically greatly in the minority, all right? 
But that shouldn't, you know, daunt us in any way. We wanted to ask the same question we've been asking since the beginning of the church and certainly since the Reformation. What does the scripture say? So we're going to look to that. Yes, go ahead. I mean, I think that most of these denominations aren't really talking about salvation like we talked about it. So I'm wondering if they even, if they're baptizing the infants, what do they say about it? Well, yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at... Really see that salvation is being a big issue, it doesn't seem like, because they don't talk about it. Well, certainly not. The Catholics look on salvation differently than we do, and they're in a different category. The Catholics are going to pop up in two of our categories tonight, infant baptism and baptismal regeneration. As I, I think I even say right here, the Catholics believe that if you're not baptized by them, you'll go to hell. So you have to be water baptized by the Catholic Church in order to go to heaven. That's what they teach. That's the essence of baptismal regeneration. We'll get to that in Category 2 tonight. But, uh, yeah, they don't look at it. But the Methodists, I mean, they were circuit-riding, you know, gospel preachers. They were kind of the stars of the show in our last study on revivalism. Um, And so they definitely believed in in hearing a message and believe in all that. But they just... It was just one step removed from Anglicanism, which itself was one step removed from Roman Catholicism. You mean they would talk about being born again, oh, yeah. then they would also talk about infant baptism. Well, they would baptize adult converts. Like if some guy came, some drunk person or whatever, came to their camp meetings and all that, and he'd never been to church, they would baptize him when he came to faith, so that would be a case of believer baptism. But give that guy some time to raise a family, all right, he settles down, he marries, he has children, they're going to baptize his infants too. So that's where we part company at that point. So they did believe. Now, you're right in saying nowadays, most of the Methodist churches you go to, you're not going to hear you must be born again. You're not going to hear the understanding of regeneration and faith and all that we have. So that's true. All right. But I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just saying that as we look around, we, we scope out the, the Christian world around us, and we look at denominations, we look at, you know, most of them believe in, in infant baptism. My question is, you know, on what, on, on what basis do they do so? That's what we're really looking at here. What is, the, what is the reason that they're giving? That's the thing we're trying to understand. So let's start with the basic argument for infant baptism. And, and as I said last time, there is no open scriptural warrant for it. You know, they'll, they'll acknowledge that. Uh, I told you Dr. Nicole's quote last time, there are three categories of scripture used to support infant baptism. They're just listed for you here. Those that men- mention baptism and not infants, those that mention infants and not baptism, and those that mention neither one. That's a fancy way of saying that there is no clear command or example of infant baptism anywhere in the Bible. None. Shouldn't that cause you to pause? I mean, it does me. I, I would think that there would be somewhere that I would be commanded to baptize my infants. Were there in the Old Covenant any commands that the Jewish fathers had to, to circumcise their sons? Most certainly there were. Okay, There's certainly the example of the patriarchs with, uh, with Abraham in Genesis 17, but there's a clear command in Leviticus 12 as well, and other places just assume that on the eighth day that child will be circumcised. And Paul was, as you know, circumcised on the eighth day and all that. That's just part of what they did. There is a clear command and some warnings that if you're not circumcised, you're cut off from the covenant. We'll talk more about that. But the fact of the matter is there is such a command. How am I told that I need to baptize my infants? I'm a Gentile, let's say. I wasn't, I wasn't raised in the Jewish faith. I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do. I've got a wife. I've got kids. What should I do? Well, I should love my wife as Christ loved the church. I should bring up my children in the, in the fear and nurture of the Lord. I should do all these things. Okay, wait a minute. I'm supposed to baptize them? When, where am I told that? There is no command. It doesn't exist. So how it could be pressed on our conscience is something we ought to do. And you say, well, you know, there's some things that we just know we ought to do because there, there's examples of them or what we ought not to do. And so we just look at the Bible and we get examples, maybe not clear commands, 
but we get examples, positively or negatively. Valid way to handle the scripture. But there's no examples of it either. What are you left with then? Well, what you're left with is a systematic or biblical theological approach to salvation. That's what you're left with. You're left with some incredibly intelligent people who have amazing ways of weaving the whole Bible together and understanding all of those biblical themes in ways that are ordinarily accurate. Um, and they're giving you a systematic or big picture argument rather than specific text because they don't have any. It's all that they can do. For them, it's enough. All right, so we're talking about Presbyterians, Reforms, other people. These are some of the most brilliant minds there have ever been in church history. It's a bit daunting when you look at it. When you look on the other side and there is Calvin and, and there's John Owen and there's you know all these geniuses, Jonathan Edwards and all that, and they're on the other side and there you stand a little Baptist with all of your interesting Baptist friends and you're thinking, gee, you know, I don't know. But uh, like Luther at the Diet of Arms, I can do no other, here I stand. I've got the scripture and you know, you've got church tradition and all that, let's go with that. But again, there's no pattern of scripture at all. What they have is a basic concept and here's the concept. It's called covenant theology and the idea is that God has always saved people the same way. There's one covenant he has always worked through to save. It's called covenant theology and it's, an, it's a valid observation. Uh, what do I mean by that? We well, just go to Romans 4. After teaching on justification by faith apart from works of the law, Paul then goes into how this doctrine, this teaching, isn't anything new. He's not actually teaching a new way to God. I mean, there are certainly new aspects of it, and we'll get to that in a moment. That's the whole key here. There is a new covenant. But in terms of how an individual sinner stood right before God, that actually has never changed. And so it says in Romans 4, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's right in Genesis 15. What is the apostle Paul doing there? He's saying justification by faith is as ancient as the human race. It's right from the start. And I would argue that that's even more what the author of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews 11. When he goes back to Abel, and Abel's offering, like the first guy that died and went to heaven, he went based on faith. Isn't that pretty much the, the, uh, the implication of, of Abel being right there in the hall of faith? His offering was done by faith. God accepted it based on faith, and that's it. Um, so the argument is a valid one generally. Individual sinners have always been saved the same way. Before Jesus and after Jesus, always the same way. That's a valid argument. And so it uses this language in Hebrews 13 and verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And then the, the doxology goes on. But it's this language of, of, of the eternal covenant. There is just this one covenant by which we are saved. I think it's a valid observation. And frankly, I think it's a very important observation. I think it's so important that Paul put it in Romans 4. And so something that important we should keep in mind. But I think they go too far. Let's keep going. In the Old Testament also, male infants, and that's an important distinction, male infants were circumcised as a covenant sign, an entrance into the covenant community. All right, so Genesis 17, this is my covenant with you, God speaking to Abraham there, this is my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And then Genesis 17:14. any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it's very serious 
uh, for them not to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you bro you've broken the covenant. So what they do, what paedo-baptists or infant baptizers do, is they put up a parallel between Israel and the church as the covenant community. That's a, a huge issue for them. Basically, the Israel of the Old Testament is the church of the New Testament. And so, therefore, there's this so-called covenant community, and there was this ritual, circumcision, into which infants, you know, were, they entered this covenant community. And they draw a parallel, uh, then, between circumcision and baptism. That's how they do it. In the New Testament, then, baptism takes the place of circumcision as the covenant symbol. Clearly, the book of Galatians, as well as Acts 15, says that the time of circumcision as a requirement is over. We don't have to do it anymore. It's finished. If you're not sure about that, read Galatians. All right? But it's in there. You don't need to do it. We're free from circumcision. We don't have to circumcise our sons on the eighth day. But what they do is they say, okay, but there's this new sign of it, uh, a covenant symbol of entrance into the covenant community. It's now baptism. And they'll point to a, a passage like Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't think either the circumcision or the baptism mentioned in Colossians 2 are physical. Neither one. I think both of them are those spiritual acts done by God. Kind of like a circumcision, kind of like a baptism. I think that's what he's saying. Something that Jesus did in your heart, something he did to your souls when you were saved. Do you not see that? You were circumcised in the putting off of your old nature. And he specifically says not the circumcision done by the hands. Not that. But in the baptism or union with Christ, I think, uh, through your faith in the power of God, etc. Now, I want to say this one thing. Baptists should recognize that there is a parallel and an overlap, therefore, between circumcision and baptism. There is a parallel over and an overlap. But there's not an identification of the two. They're not identical. One hasn't substituted the other. We don't have any passage that tells us that... <clears throat> that water baptism has taken the place now of circumcision. Do you get any kind of taken the place kind of concept here in Colossians 2? Because this is the only verse in the whole Bible that puts circumcision and baptism even kind of close to each other, there's, where there's even a proximity. But I don't see any substitution language here. They're actually similar to one another here. They're actually like one another. It's not that one has taken the place of the other. So okay. Very, to me, very problematic. In the Old Covenant, the symbol was only done to males. And I think, if, if you just ask my opinion, I think that that points to the procreative nature of that Old Covenant sign. It had to do with biological reproduction and a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that he would have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. Don't you see it? It's all about biology. It's about people being born in a, in a community, about a nation that's going to grow up and take over a promised land. The time of that is done. The time of that has been fulfilled. God's promise there has been fulfilled. He had descendants as numerous as the stars. He, he fulfilled the promise. And so, you know, therefore, go ahead, please. So I'm thinking about this idea of parallelism, and I'm, I'm thinking that in the Old Covenant, all you had to do was be born as a child of Abraham. So right. Obviously, you, you yeah. qualified. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but in the New Testament... We're talking about a spiritual, like a, a born again. And so we'll get there, but thank you. Thank you, dear friend. It's <laughs> so, really an issue about what constitutes the church and what constitutes, I mean. Yeah, I mean, you've already, you've already gone there, and I think it's so vital. 
you could be a, a law-abiding, to some degree, Old Covenant member and go to hell. Member of that covenant community. That's why Paul is so broken up and grieved in Romans 9. Because they go, they're going to hell, these people. They've been circumcised. They're in the covenant community. They've received some adoption as sons, he lists there. But they're going to hell. That's why he's grieving over them. That's not possible in the new covenant. Thank God. Okay? But how do you enter that? Well, John 1 tells us, by believing in his name, we get the right to become children of God. So you've already gotten there. We'll get there. I'll get there. I promise. But uh, very, very good. good. Good observation. I think Old Covenant is all about biology and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and genealogies and who is your daddy and your granddaddy and all that. That's not happening in the church. Do you not see the difference? I've said to my children more times than I can count, I can't bring you with me to heaven. My faith isn't going to get you there. Now, I can influence you. There are benefits from growing up in my household. Benefits, all right, as opposed to a pagan household. There are benefits, and I think that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about, a sanctification of the children. But it doesn't mean that, that by that, then they go to heaven. They must be born again. And we have to tell them that, and we do. Yes? Paul makes that same argument that you're making about Colossians, both of those acts being internal in Romans. Talks chapter 2. Concerning circumcision in chapter 2, right. being an internal and Jews are the ones that are circumcised in the heart. And then in Romans chapter 6, he talks right. about the spiritual baptism into Christ. Absolutely. So it's something that has to happen inside you. And I'll say this. I'll say this. You could, Romans 2, have a circumcision, a circumcision that was physical and end up in hell. But you could also have a circumcision that was physical and end up in heaven. As Edwards would say, it was no sign either way. What you really needed, though, was that internal circumcision done by the Spirit, not by hands, not by the hands. And so, in the same way, you could be water baptized and go to hell. More than one time water baptized. You could be baptized multiple times and go to hell. You know, you could have new experiences and get baptized again and go to hell. What you need is to be born again, genuinely born again. It has to be something done by the Spirit. Beautiful. Uh, thank you very much. Romans 2 and 6. Very, very good. All right. Now, let's look at these household baptisms. They say, oh, yes, but there were the household baptisms. There must have been infants there. Must have been. I mean, don't you, don't you think? What do you think? I mean, there must have been infants there in Cornelius' house, right? Had to be. Is that good enough for you? Well, I'm sorry. It's not good enough for me. I'd like to at least have one of them named. You know, little so-and-so who was just born a week ago and he was there or she was there, you know. Somebody needs to be named, but instead this assumption that there must have been infants there isn't really good enough for me, especially when you look at the details and think there really weren't infants there. All right? Actually, in Lydia's case, I don't think there were. I think as I look at Lydia, I'm looking at probably, I'm guessing, a woman well along in her life, professional woman who's 300 miles from her home. She's in Philippi. But she's from Thyatira, and I, there's no husband mentioned. There's no children mentioned. It's a huge leap to think that she had infants that were baptized. I'm not seeing it. I just don't see it there. Cornelius, I have no idea. His house was full of people. I mean, he was a Roman guy who had lots of friends. And, uh, I, you know, I, I just think it's, it's really dangerous to assume that there were infants there at Cornelius's. Yes. Peter told Oxman that they should be baptized because they've received the Holy Spirit. So I said that infants who couldn't have received the Holy Spirit would have put a big hole in the argument. Absolutely. They were speaking in tongues. 
Now, if that infant was speaking in tongue, now I probably would have baptized him at that point. I mean, what, who, what could I do? I mean, that would be a miracle. But there's no evidence that any of the infants were speaking in tongues. God had intended that those children to grow up and learn their mother tongue in the normal way. We have no evidence of infants speaking in tongues. So anyway, this could get real humorous real quickly, so I'm just going to move on. All right, so here are your four households, Cornelius' household, Lydia's household, the Philippian jailer's household, and the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1. That's it. Those are your four household baptisms. All right, there's no other, no other household baptisms, but again, there are no infants explicitly mentioned. And frankly, especially in the Philippian jailer case, I think it just kills it. If you look at the Philippian jailer case, I think it's actually one of the stronger evidences that I already told you, a believer baptism. Even the household, I mean. I mean, look at, look at the language. The jailer calls for lights, rushed, rushed in, uh, you know, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked a very good question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Pause. Having nothing to do with baptism, do you know how to answer that question? Do you know what to do if somebody ever asks you that? You should pray every day, no joke, you should pray every day that someone would ask you something like this until you graduate to being a, an advanced evangelist and you don't need a softball question like this. But if you, if you get a softball question like this, you ought to know what to say, okay, and be able to lead them to Christ. Um, but ask for it. I mean, why not ask for what you want? Say, Lord, I pray that someone would come trembling and fall before me today and say, what must I do to be saved? And then you'll know what to do and you'll have the joy of leading them to Christ. But uh, even if that doesn't happen, that you would be active in evangelism is on my heart, very much on my heart this week. So at any rate, he falls and says, what must I do to be saved? They reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now let's stop there. You can either read that two ways. A, a, a credo-baptist or baptistic kind of way of understanding that is the same rule applies to you and your household. Okay? In other words, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you individually will be saved, every one of the members of your household. You all get the same thing. That's my understanding of it. They all have to hear and believe, and then they'll be saved. Another way to look at it is that if you, as the head of the house, believe, then your whole household will be saved. Well, I don't think they even teach that. Saved? You know, baptized, yes, but they even acknowledge that that baptism doesn't save. I mean, I'm talking about the evangelical Presbyterians. They acknowledge that at some later time, those little ones have to hear and believe and be justified. They, they know Romans 4 like we do. I mean, these are good evangelicals. And they're going to say at some later time, they're going to need to hear and believe in order to be saved. So that, that goes too far at that point. Now, I think it's teaching that they have to hear and believe. And if they do, then they can be saved. All right, so what happens next? Well, they preach the word. They preach the gospel. Very key step. Remember what I'm telling you. The messengers go, the gospel is preached, the person hears and believes with faith, and then water baptism is applied, and then they're taught to obey everything Christ has commanded. That's the order I see in the Bible. And so I think we see it here. They speak the word of God uh, to them and to all the others in his house. Is that an important statement? So everybody in the house hears the gospel preached. They all hear it. All right, and then the jailer takes care of Paul and Silas, washes their wounds, wounds, and immediately he and his family are baptized. Now, that word immediately is important because I've already taught you that baptism isn't something you wait for. You don't need to go to a bunch of classes. All right? Instead, as soon as there is a creditable profession of faith in Christ, then you administer water baptism. You don't need to wait. Okay? So immediately he and his family are baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Now, the NIV just screams Baptist faith. It really does. Other translations kind of rearrange that last sentence a bit. 
And it may be, the Greek kind of supports possibly the idea that the whole family is filled with joy because the jailer has come to believe in God. But I have a hard time believing that's what's going on. They don't believe, mind you, but they're sure happy he has come to faith in Christ. That just doesn't make much sense to me. That's the only other way to understand it. I think what I'm understanding is that everybody is filled with joy because everybody has come to faith in God. Friends, that's a Baptist passage. Don't you see it? So I would think that our infant Baptist friends, our pedo Baptist friends, wouldn't want to go to this household baptism. It doesn't help them much because it just it just pleads for us to believe in believer baptism. And so it does. Household of Stephanus doesn't help much. Paul's just trying to remember who he baptized. It's like, I don't even remember. Who did I baptize? I think I baptized Crispus and Gaius. And who was there? Oh, yeah, the household of Stephanus. I think I baptized them. I don't know. I don't know. For God didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. We'll get to that when we talk about baptismal regeneration. But he's just trying to remember, and he said, I think I baptized the house of Stephanus. Does that help you on the infant Baptist thing, baptism thing? Not at all. I have no idea about the household of Stephanus. Nothing. But based on the experience we've already had with the Philippian jailer, I'm thinking maybe they also had heard the message, and they also believed, just like the household of the Philippian jailer. So, any questions or comments about the household baptisms? Well, okay, this yes. is a little trivial. Go for it. Fun with it. Okay. In verse 34 in Acts 16, if household was synonymous with everybody in your household, they would be whole household. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, I, I, all I'm saying is the, the key thing for their case is they've got to find an infant somewhere. People who can hear and believe will not help them. They, that helps us. So I'm just scouring this to find an infant somewhere, and there isn't one. And not only that, there's not even a hint of one. There's more a hint of people that are able to hear and understand a message and believe. So it just doesn't help them at all. Okay, let's keep moving. Is that a big argument? A really big The household arguments? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that's the way they see their faith. That's the way they see their own responsibility toward their household. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so the household baptisms are part of it. It's, they really think a lot about them. They're just missing some infants. That's all. It just you need you need some you need some infants. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, moving on. Acts uh, two thirty-eight and thirty-nine. These are some other verses that they use. Uh, we've already seen this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, they say. See, right there. There it is. The promise is for you and for your children. So you and your children together are receiving these benefits and these blessings. But again, understand, if you just go back a little bit, I think it really, again, proves the Baptist uh, position, if read properly. The promise is that uh, is uh, for the children of verse 39 that everyone who repents and, bapti- and is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if the children do what he said in verse 38, repent and believe, they receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. The promise is for everybody and for all whom the Lord will call out to the nth generation. That's, see, in other words, it's, everybody gets saved the same way. Frankly, I think it teaches the Baptist view. Since we're having a dialogue, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I think it might also, maybe it also refers to Joel 2, uh, 28 through 32, sure. where it says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Right. So that's right. a promise. It will be your children also. Right. But this verse is more talking soteriologically with salvation. You know, how, uh, sirs, what, you know, what do they say? Uh, what, what, what do we have to do to be saved? That's basically what they ask in verse 37. They're cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And it doesn't mean just that we want to speak in tongues or we want to prophesy. It's that we want to go to heaven. 
You know, they're cut to the heart that they're sinners. So they ask the question, and this is the answer that's given. And what I'm saying is the answer is given for everybody. It's one answer for the whole human race. It doesn't matter if they're Jews or Gentiles. It doesn't matter if they're young or old. Everybody gets the same answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All right, then they give us 1 Corinthians 7, 14. For the unbelieving husband is made... This is the ESV, by the way. I went over ESV. It's better, I think, for us than the NIV on this case. in this case. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So there's the use of that word holy, and it's a bit troubling. But what you need to understand is there are different uses of the word holy. Like if, you know, we talk a lot in this church about progressive sanctification. The word sanctification or sanctify in the New Testament generally doesn't mean to become progressively more and more like Jesus. That's generally not how the word is used. The concept is most definitely there, but the, the word isn't used for that in the New Testament. Generally, the word sanctify means set them apart as special and sacred in, in an unusual kind of way. I think that's the way the word usually means. And so sanctify means make them holy. So there's a sense of being set apart. And I think that's what's going on in this verse. All right. Notice that the verse teaches more than the Pado Baptists want it to teach. Because it says that your children, if the, you know, even, even if there's just one believer, you know, if it's a mixed marriage, and that's really what it's talking about is a mixed marriage. If even one, the husband or the wife, you know, the father or the mother, is a believer, the children are in some sense holy. Do you see what a leap it is to go from that statement to say, therefore, they should be baptized? I, I, don't, I don't see baptism in this verse, just like I told you. <laughs> they mentioned children, but not baptism. And so, you know, basically, there's no baptism in this verse. It's just a statement about them in a spiritual sort of sense. They are, in some sense, holy, whatever that means. But notice the same thing is said about the unbelieving husband. Holy? Should we baptize him too? I don't know any Presbyterians that would baptize the unbelieving husband because the wife is a believer or vice versa, the wife because the husband's a believer. No, they would never do that. And so it, it just, the verse just doesn't help them. Instead, what do I think it is saying? I think what it's saying is there are definite benefits to growing up in a Christian home. There are definite benefits to having a Christian father or mother. Even if you only had one, it's better than having none. That's what I think he's saying. So there is an advantage. And even for the husband, there is an advantage to having a Christian wife. You don't know for certain you'll lead your husband to Christ, but you might. He's got a better opportunity than if you weren't a Christian. So if you live out that beautiful Christian, let's, let's take a, a, the case of an of a unbelieving husband and a believing wife. First Peter gives that, that, that advice, First Peter 3, on what to do. You know, you, you should carry yourself in a certain way and win them over without, without words. You know, there's an example. That's what he's teaching there. Well, he's got an advantage. Frankly, he's got an advantage over the other unbelieving men of his community that don't have, let's say, a Christian wife. He's got a better, if we can use this language, chance to become a Christian because he's got a godly wife. You see what I'm saying? But this does not teach infant baptism. I don't see how we can say it. All right, that's unraveling the case for infant baptism. Let's make a case against it. And bottom line is there's a fundamental interpretive error that they're making. And what is it? They are making too much of the unity across the Testaments and making too little of the disunity or discontinuity. There is a difference, friends, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There just is. I mean, and it's not a minor difference. It's a big-time difference. There's a big, huge difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And what they're doing is they're kind of churchifying Israel of the Old Covenant 
and they're Judaizing the church of the new covenant and just kind of flattening it all out in that sense. And that's something we ought not to do. There are just big differences between the Israel of the old covenant and the church of the new covenant, just big differences, okay? Um, so they overlook these differences. They read the Old Testament as, as if it were somewhat the new, and they read the new as if the, the old. You know who does this a lot is Calvin. John Calvin uses the word church to describe Israel all the time. It's really, it's really amazing. It's kind of jarring the first time you read it, and then after a while, like, you just get used to it. It's just the way he sees it. That was the church back then. Well, it isn't, actually. There's just a clear difference, a clear difference. All right, and there's also an error about circumcision in the Old Testament. They neglect, as we've already discussed, the physical, biological, reproductive aspect of circumcision. It's really pointing at the promises made to Abraham that he would have descendants, multiple descendants. All right, and there's an error about baptism in the New Testament. They talk about entrance into the covenant community. Well, you don't really have that language in the New Testament, the covenant community. What does that mean? I mean, that's a huge phrase for them. Again, that's the kind of thing that you're just not going to find in the, in the New Testament. The covenant community, what is that? We, the church is there. We can talk about the church, but I don't see the language covenant community. I don't think we find it. All right, so those concepts are foreign. Um, all right, now let's look at some key texts, and I really want to focus on this first one. It's by far the most important, and that's Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is incredibly important. This passage should be familiar to you. I'll go ahead and read it. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now, why should that be familiar? Well, it's quoted almost word for word in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews 10. Fundamental to the argument of Hebrews that the old covenant is obsolete, it's gone. It's dis he actually says it after, that, after quoting that. He says, you know, by calling this covenant new, he has made the old covenant obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon pass away. I think the word soon implies that the temple hadn't been destroyed yet. In effect, the author of Hebrews is saying, just wait, God will take care of that. And he did. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and it was so clearly obsolete at that point, nobody's really questioned it since then. All right, but in Hebrews 8, you had to know that by faith. And he's saying, I'm telling you, the time of the new covenant is here. And animal sacrifice is over. We don't need it anymore. We don't need the Levitical priesthood. don't need the Holy of Holies. You don't need that curtain in the temple that was torn in two from top to bottom. You don't need any, any of that. It's all gone. Well, how do we know that? Well, Jeremiah told us it was coming. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And it's not going to be like the old covenant. Now, that's where the Paedo-Baptists make their mistake. It's not like the old covenant. There are some differences. And that's the key thing. Well, what are the differences? Well, first of all, this is a covenant. Yes, I'm sorry, Horace. The old covenant was the sacrifice of animals. That's right. But in the new covenant, Christ beautiful horse that's beautiful so we don't need any animal sacrifice and we don't need circumcision very good well done all right so let, what are some differences first of all let's just talk for a moment just so we can just enjoy one another and enjoy the covenant what are the three beautiful things that this promise gives us that the old covenant didn't what are the, the benefits of the new covenant that the old covenant doesn't give us well first of all at the very end it gives you forgiveness of sins did you get forgiveness of sins from the laws of moses you most certainly did not. You found out what your sins were. <laughs> That's what you didn't get forgiveness from it. 
No, the blood of bulls and goats never forgave sin. That it never came that way. The old covenant didn't forgive a single sin ever. We already found out how sins were forgiven in the time of the old covenant by faith alone. That's the way it's always been. All right, so the old covenant did not produce or give the forgiveness of sins. Uh, secondly, a transformed nature. Do you see that? I will, I'll take these laws and I'm going to write them in your mind and in your heart. You're going to become a different person. I'm going to take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take the, the precepts of this covenant and I'm going to put them right inside you. And thirdly, an intimate and permanent relationship with God. I will be their God. They will be my people. A permanent relationship with God. Everyone will know me from the least of them to the greatest. Well, you know how significant that language is. You don't have to say, know the Lord. They're all going to know me, all of them. Well, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. We're going to see his face. We're going to be an intimate, perfect relationship. Old covenant didn't give you that. Not at all. So we get these three beautiful benefits from the new covenant. Complete forgiveness of sins, a transformed nature, and an eternal place with Almighty God. That's what the new covenant gives you. Therefore, the new covenant is an unbreakable covenant. Do you see it? It can't be broken. You can't violate it. And he said, that's really how Jeremiah introduces it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different because they didn't keep my old covenant. They broke it. So I'm going to make, in effect, he says, I'm going to make a covenant they can't break. An unbreakable covenant. Now, how sweet is that? Uh, that's where your security comes from. The once saved, always saved doctrine comes from the essential nature of the new covenant. We can't break it. He's transformed us. He's going to work in us what is pleasing to him, etc. So it's an unbreakable covenant. Now, we already learned from Genesis 17, 14. What happened to any male who, di who did not get circumcised based on Genesis 17, 14? What is said of him? He broke my covenant. Well, there it is. There's a breakable covenant. If you didn't get circumcised, you broke the covenant. You're kicked out, you're out. You're not in the, in the community. Well, there, that's a, a breakable co uh, covenant. Secondly, the new covenant is made with believers only. Okay? The, the old covenant was made with unbelievers and believers alike. If you are physically descended from Abraham, you're in. You are a baby. There's no faith involved in getting circumcised on the eighth day. It's something your parents did. You could say they did it by faith. Not necessarily. They could circumcise you not from faith. They could do it for fleshly reasons. They didn't want their kids to get kicked out. They didn't want to be kicked out. They didn't want to be stoned or whatever. Uh, they might have had any one of a number of reasons for doing it. All right? So basically, this covenant, the old covenant, was not in any way, shape, or form made with believers only. But the new covenant most certainly is. It's only those who have a transformed nature, who have a heart of stone taken out, a heart of flesh put in, those whose sins are forgiven. And we know that the only one whose sins are forgiven in the New Testament are believers. It's by faith in Christ that the sins are forgiven. Therefore, this does not apply to infants, infant children of believers. Their sins haven't been forgiven. They're not in the new covenant, not yet. We hope they will be someday. We want their sins forgiven. That's the essence of the new covenant. We want their sins to be forgiven. But that's only going to happen, Romans chapter 3, when they're justified by faith in Christ. When that happens, then they're believers. And guess what? Then we will baptize them. That's the whole thing. That's how it works. So this is made with the elect in mind. It's, it's made with the children of God, the true children of God in mind. All right, I'm going to skip Jeremiah 32. We're just, it's teaching about the same thing. Let's go to John 1. Um, and again, this gets to the point we were talking about with Lori um, just a few minutes ago. Um, how do you become a son or child of God now? How, how does that happen? Well, you know, John 1.11 says very, very plainly, Jesus came to that which was his own or his own people did not receive him that's talking about the jews right the old covenant people they didn't receive him they didn't accept him but 
to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, uh, children who are not born of the, of the uh, blood or the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. Now, what does it mean when it says they were not born of blood? What's that? Have you ever heard the expression, blood is thicker than water? What's that referring to? Family, Family kinship, right? The, the blood, blood of so-and-so, the blood of kings flows through your veins, that kind of thing. All right, what it means is it's got to do with kinship. It's got to do with your relatives. Well, these are not born of blood. So what does that mean then? What is it saying? This is not referring to the blood of Jesus now. Don't misunderstand. This is referring to ancestry, genealogy. What is this teaching us? If, if these children are not born of blood, then, then what? It doesn't matter. Who their doesn't, was. It doesn't matter. Your father or mother may or may not be a believer. You're not disqualified. It's not like he skips every other generation. You know, it's like, oh, no, I'm out. I'm done. My father came to faith in Christ. I'm out. No, it's not. It just has nothing to do with it. It's no sign either way that your father or mother were Christians. You're not born that way. And you're not born by the will of man, uh, the will of the flesh or the will of man. It, it's not, it does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, said Paul in Romans 9. What does it depend on? It depends on God. The Spirit of God. And if you are born by the Spirit of God, then you are a child of God. And if you are not born by the Spirit of God, you are not a child of God. In the New Covenant, we administer water baptism to those who are children of God. They are the covenant community, if we want to use that language, though it's not New Testament language. They are the believers. We Baptists, we believe in a believer church. We believe in regenerate church membership. We believe that is the community. That's who we want to be part of. All right? So that's, to me, very, very important. Someone came and told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. Remember that? He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For everyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He's redefining family there. Do you see it? I tell you this. I, will, I definitely feel more kinship to a believer who's not a biological family member than I do to a biological family member who's not a believer. Now, I can pray for that biological family member and do that they will become believers. And I'm not ashamed if any of them would hear this on the Internet. It would not bother me at all. I've told this to their face. I have much more kinship to believers than I do to unbelieving family members. They need to repent and believe. And then they will be eternally my family members. And I hope that it happens. So do you, do you not feel that? Do you not see it? By the way, I want to say that extends also across patriotic lines as well. I feel much more kinship to somebody who's not an American but who is a believer than somebody who is an American who is not. And, you know, I mean, just say that with no problem at all. My family are the believers. Those are the ones. And that's my nation. Those are my people. And they're yours as well. All right. So, to me, that's who we should... Uh... All right. Now, the final step here is in Romans 9 and Romans 8. Romans 9, Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Now stop there. What does that mean? Theirs is the adoption as sons. Well, it's a kind of adoption. Remember how God through Moses said to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn, what? Son, let him go. And if you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to kill your son. Remember that? Well, in what sense was Israel his firstborn son? Well, it didn't mean every single solitary individual person was going to go to heaven. 
Why then would Paul say, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish? They're going to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. Jesus himself said, you're not of your, Abraham's not your father, you're of your father the devil. So you're not truly children of Abraham. If you were, you would do what Abraham did. Well, he's speaking in a new covenant kind of way there. He really is. Yes, I acknowledge that Abraham's your biological father, but it doesn't matter. John the Baptist said the same thing. Don't boast saying, you know, Abraham is our father. God can raise out of stones his children for Abraham. That's not going to save you. That's the implication. It's not going to save you. Well, what will save you? Is there an adoption that will save us? Yeah, he mentioned it in the previous chapter. The adoption that we get through faith in Jesus Christ. For God did not give us a spirit of slavery to fear, but instead the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. If that spirit is in you, that adoption, then you're going to go to heaven. Because it says, uh, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Same thing as John 1, 12. We believed in Jesus, we're God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And again, adoption in verse 23, Romans 8, 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the, the full inheritance of, of our sonship is the physical resurrection of the body so that our bodies are made like Jesus' body. That's the finish line of salvation. It always has been. It always will be. When we are in our resurrection bodies, we have our full inheritance rights as sons and daughters of the living God. Th- that adoption saves you. The other one didn't. That was a whole different thing. So they do not see the discontinuity between the Old Covenant community and the New, New Testament believer church properly. And therefore, they make a mistake on baptism. There are lots of discontinuities. Um, the uh, circumcision in the Old Testament linked to the promises made to Abraham. Like, for example, you'll have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand in the seashore. Is that what baptism symbolizes? That we're going to have that? There's no such promise made to me. I don't have any promise like that. Or, or that, 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 that uh, kings will come from your body. Is that what baptism symbolizes? No, it doesn't. Rather, circumcision links into the promise made to Abraham. You see it? Or, or you, will, you will inherit this land where you're now sojourning as strangers. You'll get the land. Is that promise to us in the church? Is that a gospel promise? No, it isn't. Now, we, get, we inherit the earth, and meek will inherit the earth and all that, but these are old covenant promises made in Genesis to Abraham, and circumcision links up with those promises. Baptism is entirely different. And then these questions. If circumcision has the same meaning, of bath, meaning as baptism, two important questions, why institute a new sign? If, if it's the same thing, why, why do it? Secondly, why baptize those that were already circumcised? Jews were circumcised, right? Were they also baptized when they believed in Jesus? They were. They were water baptized. Circumcised Jews were. Okay. Summary. Since no New Testament passage teaches us that it is our responsibility to baptize our children, as Genesis 17 and Leviticus 12 tells, tell Jewish, told Jewish fathers that they had to do with their children, their sons, and since there is not even any clear example of infant baptism anywhere in the Bible, and since the covenantal arguments made by Pato baptists underestimate the discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants, and since the preponderance of the evidence in the New Testament is for believer baptism, therefore we should baptize only those who give clear evidence of faith in Christ. Now, you may, you may ask, what about baptismal regeneration and child baptism? You may be asking that question right now, okay, in that it's 730 and I'll say, oh, well, 
we're out of time. But God willing, perhaps we'll carve into next week's teaching on Lord's Supper and uh, do something on that. Any questions on infant baptism? Yes. Well, actually, that was what I was going to bring up. Um, if the pedo baptists use as the rationale um, Jesus' statement about letting all children come to Yes, they do. They do. But Charles Spurgeon preached a brilliant sermon, and the title is worth the price of admission. Children brought to Christ and not to the font. Font means baptism. So it's a beautiful sermon title. I mean, sometimes just the title is all you need. All right. And yes, we bring them to Christ. We don't bring them to the baptismal waters. Amen. Amen. So there you go. Yes, Margo. You do sneak in from next week. Um, there's a distinction I'm hoping you can describe, which you may want you to of uh, earlier is that the um, credible profession of faith. Yes. And this sentence here says clear evidence of faith. So, right. Yeah, I, you know, I wasn't being lawyer-like precise, but it is my job to be careful with words. So I kind of consider them to be, to be similar. If you're, if we're going to start to morph into child baptism right now, we just don't have time. It's such a tough topic. I've given you a bunch of statements on it. You can read them and come in loaded for bear. I shouldn't have done it. Why did I do it? <laughs> Give them back. Come on, rip off the last page and just hand it in, and we'll talk about it. Now, go ahead. I have no shame of what I wrote. I just think it's a tough topic, and we can kind of love one another together through it. Shall we do that just as a community of, of Baptist-type people that will just love one another through the difficult topic of child baptism? All right. Uh, any more question? One more? Yes, Jim. If we have time to address baptism next week, it's going to be of interest in Yeah, I mean, I touched on it already tonight, and I'll just say one little thing. We can talk about it next time, but I just don't think there should be any great delay. I don't believe in any great delay. Like some have been like this year of theological study and observation of life and all that. I don't see that. I see a regular pattern of pretty quick baptisms in the Bible. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch and then uh, Philippian jailer that night. It's midnight or three in the morning, and they're getting baptized. So that's pretty good. But you know, praise God concerning you and the Church of Christ. We'll talk about that next time. That was that's bad news. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this evening, the time we've had to study infant baptism. I just want to thank you for my friends in the faith who believe in infant baptism. I thank you for their love for you. I have in mind specific names that I won't speak right now, but just uh, men whose ministry has blessed me, whose example blesses me. But Lord, for all of that, I still don't think that they're right on this. And I think that the evidence that was given tonight should be enough to convince them. Uh, But Lord, even if it's not, um, we thank you that they have come to a saving faith in Christ. For us, O Lord, we want to hold clearly to the scriptural teaching on believer baptism and do it here. Help us to be faithful. I pray that not one of us would trust in our water baptism, but rather trust in the testimony of the Holy Spirit that we have been truly uh, regenerated by faith in Christ, that we would put our trust there. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.